Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community, and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week, I have farmer Andrew Stewart joining me on the show for a yarn. There has been significant rainfall in the Manawatu where he lives and farms over the past few days. And from what I gather, some localised flooding has caused significant damage to a couple of farms in his area. Let's check in with him now. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for chatting with me today. You're welcome. Please can you tell me where you farm and what you farm? Uh, so my wife Kylie and I farm Tyrone, which is 680 hectares of hill country, about 12 minutes northwest of Martin, just off the Turakina Valley in the Rangitaki region. Um, yeah, sheep and beef breeding property. We do finish some stock, but it is hill country predominantly. So yeah, we're predominantly a, be- a breeding operation. Mm. Um, we also have a tourism business with a farm stay as well, and we run a mud run every year called the Mudder. There's been quite a bit of rain over the past few days. How much have you had at your place, and how has the wider region got on? We've had, uh, on our farm, we've got our own little weather station, um, and we're up to 160-odd mils, I think, as of, and I'm looking at it, some more black clouds rolling in. So it's been pretty relentless, um, but probably more concerning uh, just to the north of us, about maybe 10 to 15 cases of crow flies. There's been some farms that have been pretty severely damaged uh, to to the same sort of level that they were in 2004. Really? Um, So really localised flooding, flash flooding in particular, with some really heavy downpours and then um, destroying quite a bit of infrastructure on those farms. So even though it's really localised uh, for the people involved, obviously it's not the not the ideal Christmas present that they want. No, no, it's not. And what about livestock? Are livestock all okay on those properties that you're referencing? As far as I know, yes, they are. Um, I guess that's one of the benefits of so much rain in summer. We're not going to be short of grass, and there's certainly no shortage of grass at the moment, and that's going to set us up pretty well for when it does stop raining, because we we're pretty pretty much guaranteed that it does come Christmas time, is what I say. So mm. we've got to kind of take the take the positives out of this and think that it's going to set us up hopefully for the rest of the summer. This sort of rain. Well, localized flooding aside, um, what condition are the stock in on your place and just in general in the region? Um, and have you been trading any stock up until this point or plan to pre-Christmas? It's been a funny old season, really. We we had did, we had a reasonably mild and dry winter. Um, obviously, parts of it were wet and cold, but um, historically speaking, pretty good. Mm. Um, and then the last sort of couple of months, the, the weather's been probably colder and wetter than it normally is. So for the likes of lambs, for example, we're certainly not going to break any records in terms of in terms of big lambs. They're probably down in terms of um, size and mm. weight would be uh, my take on that. And mm. people are probably holding them holding them for longer because of the weather. And it's also been challenging with weaning and shearing. I know our shearers and a few other shearers around are quite a way behind just because they're struggling to get dry sheep to shear them. So that will influence weaning decisions and, and ultimately weaning and lambs getting away to the works. Um, 
the flip side to that, I guess, is, is as I said, is pretty grass, and um, that's particularly the case for the cattle. So cattle mm. have got no excuses for being skinny. There's certainly a lot of cattle feed around. And on both those fronts, the prices are uh, really good. So, yeah, long may continue. Market conditions have been strong, right? CPK rates on both sheep and beef have been pretty solid. And I guess farmers need that given input costs are increasing and only going in one direction, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And that's probably, I mean, it's quite an alarming uh, thing to take into consideration. Obviously, it's probably the same in dairy. I mean, I was obviously not a dairy farmer, but uh, obviously really buoyant with their higher payout forecasts and prices. But I think agriculture... Uh, as a sector is probably and needs to be really mindful of, I mean, if our prices were, so let's just say, for example, 20% lower than what they are now and more at, in, in line with historical trends, then there'd be a lot of people feeling quite significant financial pressure. Mm. And mm. that's only going to increase, um, uh, you know, when these markets do come off their highs, which they which they normally do. So yeah, it's certainly something to plan for and be mindful of for all farmers, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'd also go sort of step further and, and say that my view is that we need a paradigm shift in what farmers are getting paid for in this country. You know, we are positioning ourselves in a global market to be world leaders in terms of how we produce protein out of this country. But farm gate returns are not reflecting that, are they? Yeah, probably not, I guess. For, for I mean, we are recognised, I think it's pretty, pretty well documented that we recognise as producing not only the best red meat protein, but the lowest carbon footprint, footprint uh, red protein of any country in the world. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think to, we should be exploiting that as much as we can and extrapolating as much of that financial return back to the farm gate, which is where it belongs. But mm. I think part of the problem would be would have to be that gap in between when the product leaves the farm gate and when it uh, lands on someone's plate. The moment there's probably too many people taking a chunk out of that pie whereas uh, the farmers uh, need to get more return at the farm gate and probably we need to take some of that i guess fat out of the system for one of a better term that mm. is currently in there, um, to ensure those returns for farmers improve yeah yeah indeed i'd agree with that now, how are things looking on the wool front? Can you see a pathway forward for our strong wool? Frustrates me a bit because it's such a fantastic, sustainable product. It should be more widely used. And indeed, a wool clip should be an asset to a farmer and not a liability like it currently is. What do you make of that? Yeah, I totally agree with those sentiments in terms of what a product is. And we, as part of our tourism business with the farm stay, obviously before the borders closed, 95% of our uh, and uh, visitors were international guests mm. and it was quite interesting seeing them because they'd quite often watch a, a sharing demonstration and out of all the stuff that we do on farm and produce wool was by far the, the one that they interacted with the most and were most interested in mm. because they could see the sheep being shorn they could see and smell the lanolin on their hands and they could feel the warmth of the mm. wool as well so it really struck with them in that regard and I guess as a as a sheep, sheep farmer I'm still passionate about wool and I'm not going to change our farming policy because I believe it's it's got a really good future mm. and I've been involved through Federated Farmers 
um, predominantly with the Strong Will Action Group and what they've been trying to achieve this year. And although it might be frustratingly slow pro progress, they are making progress. And I think that progress I've certainly noticed, in particular with, for example, carpet manufacturers, mm. where we used to get bombarded with synthetic carpet brochures. Well, in the last six months, I've seen these carpet brochures coming through our mailbox and, and the, the wool products are being promoted a lot more heavily than they used to be, well, they mm. have probably in the last two decades. Mm. We've seen that. And we're also seeing some really, really innovative and clever people coming up with some really innovative products and solutions that are going to, they can only help the problem. Mm. Um, so I guess my... My thought process and my message is that as strong wool producers in particular, we need to hang in there and we need to keep producing this great fibre because mm. it is, in my opinion, it is going to come back and it is going to have a renaissance. And as the world changes to to get away from synthetics, people are becoming more conscious consumers and, and that's only got to be good for such a great product like wool. Now, what does a typical summer look like for you on the farm? <laughs> That's a good one because <laughs> I think in the Rangitiki, we used to be described by everyone as being summer safe, but I <laughs> kind of threw that one out the window about 10 years ago. Uh, so I guess a typical summer now, for me, we I kind of budget on it stop raining at Christmas time mm. just because in the last decade, we've had some really dry summers. We're not in the same category as the likes of Hawke's Bay or Canterbury in terms of droughts. Um, but that's, we need to be mindful of having dry summers and farm our systems um, to be in line with that. Otherwise, you can get really get into some real trouble in terms of both stock and, and your financial performance as a business. Mm. So I guess for, for me personally, I've pull back a bit and I'm quite, I run quite a conservative system now mm. based on that theory and I like to be able to comfortably have stock and not only keep stock but not be forced to make uh, selling decisions or buying decisions based on drought or very dry conditions mm. So because as we all know if, you, if you're making those decisions chances are you're going to take a bit of a bath in terms of the market price so yeah. It's nice to have flexibility in your system and a bit of a buffer there because, yeah, as we know, when it stops raining and it dries out, um, not having feed for your stock is probably worst-case scenario. Yeah, it's a pretty good approach that if um, if a farmer like yourself or any farmer for that matter that is in a position where they can farm conservatively and not put too much pressure on their uh, boundary fences or um, on their production within their farm, then that has to be the way forward, doesn't it? But it's not always that easy, is it? Farmers, well, many farmers need to maximise production and maximise output, don't they? Yeah, they do, yeah. And, yeah, totally understand that. And, yeah, I'm, I'm literally only speaking for my own personal yeah. mm. setup on our farm. Yep. And what I guess as a, you know, a mid-40-year-old farmer, I've been around the traps for a wee while now, and I've learnt in particular with these historical floods, I've been through two supposedly one in 100 year floods in the last 15 years so you get a bit wiser I guess as a result of being through those horrific events and you learn to farm a bit more with nature uh, rather than, than pushing those boundaries and fighting mm. because 
chances are, you know, if you push the boundaries too far, you're going to get your fingers burnt quite badly. So mm. I guess that's my own personal philosophy on, on what I've learned in my farming career and I've, I've tried to implement that. Um, now, it's been a pretty big couple of years in terms of policy change. They've come thick and fast, haven't they? And have you started to look at the emissions calculators yet as an example? Yeah, um, Angus, I've been looking at that particular one going right back to 2007, 2008 when it was looking at becoming part of the ETS. There was a few calculators bandied around at that stage. Mm. Fairly, fairly primitive ones, it's fair to say. But I guess my interest really peaked at that stage when I looked at our farm and in particular the level of planting that the generation before me did, my father in particular, our farm's very well planted with trees, in particular poplars and willows and space planting, and we've got areas of native bush, etc., etc. So I looked at my farming environment and I thought, now if I've got an obligation under these new legislations, where does that leave the rest of the farming industry? That's going to leave them in a terrible, terrible state because I know that a lot of farms are higher stocked. I know that a lot of farms have higher inputs. I know that a lot of farms have less trees on their farms. So if I've got a, a, a financial obligation under these legislations, then other farmers are going to face a much higher cost than I do. So that was when the warning bells went off for me and I thought, well, I need to kind of get a handle on this for my business so that I can then tell the people that are not the same position that this is something that's coming at us and we need to be really mindful of. Mm. And that's obviously been simmering away, as I said, since 2007, 2008, and it's come back with a vengeance in the last few years under the current government, mm. and in particular the threat of putting us in, as agriculture into the ETS. Mm. And so our industry uh, took it upon themselves to create Hiwaka Ikanao, which is an alternative pricing mechanism, which is currently being rolled out to farmers at the start of next year for consultation. And it's fair to say there's a lot of holes in that program too. So there's three options on the table. One is going to the ETS, which the government will do if, if farmers don't provide an option that's palatable. And then you've got a process, a hybrid levy, and then, and then a farmer, farm level levy as well. But my concern with the farm level in particular is for me and for a lot of my farming peers, we're, we're sole operators, we might have some casual staff, but predominantly, you know, mum and dad businesses across New Zealand, we just don't have the time the capacity and the uh, scientific knowledge, and there is not that within these mechanisms to actually do this stuff. It just mm. doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense. And mm. a science is not robust enough behind that to be able to be putting that stuff into law, which is what's going to happen. So that's some, some huge concerns for our sector. And when I'm talking about our sector, I'm talking about the primary sector. So that's across arable, horse, dairy, and obviously sheep and beef as well. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think farmers have got a real handle on this, and I mm. think it's going to create a hell of a lot of conflict, in particular at the start of next year when this, these programs get rolled out for consultation with farmers, and farmers say, oh my goodness, what on earth are you talking about? This is just 
the worst thing I've probably seen in my farming career. So you think there's too much pressure coming from government to get farmers to understand what's been asked of them? Do you think it's been rolled out too quickly? Yeah, I think it is. And I've, I've been, as a farmer, I put my hand up to be one of the farmer in the farmer reference group for Hewakari Okanagan because I just wanted to be involved with the process and try and understand the logic and the science and the reasoning behind it. Um, and it's fair to say, even though I've been part of that process now for you know 10 or 11 months, I still feel like I have so much to learn and so much to understand about it that it's just way, way, way too early to be thinking about legislating ourselves into that position. Yeah. And I also said, the other thing for me is, which is equally important, obviously the carbon price is increasing so much and it's driving land use change, particularly in our sheep and beef sector, so fast that our numbers are actually changing quite dramatically in terms of our stocking rate. So I guess in my, on my mind, we can prove that we our emissions profile is coming down because the, the stock numbers are coming down and the tree numbers are going up. So why on earth would we go and shoot ourselves in the foot by going down this whole uh, rabbit hole legislating ourselves against carbon? It just it just seems like insanity to me. Mm. Yeah, look, I agree with that. And it's a moving beast, this. I don't think anybody yet at any level really knows where it's all going to land. And that's the bit that I find a little scary, I have to say. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And yeah, which brings me back to the point, how on earth can we look at passing legislation, legislation which is going to become law, which is going to essentially become a tax for all farmers, let's be honest about that. Yep. When we don't have fixed science behind the law, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. And I think, if, if I'm being honest, that's quite evident with quite a lot of the policy that's coming at us. We yep. have a chain of command that's setting policy and then there's a real gap in both understanding of the primary sector and how it actually functions and the nuts and bolts needed to make that sort of legislation work. And that's evident right across climate change, freshwater, you know, significant natural areas and all these other ones that are coming at us. There's just a real lack of common sense at the very highest level where it's actually needed the most. Yeah, it's like a scattergun approach without any real thought, consideration, and as you say, robust science to back up the policies that have been thrown out. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I guess my message to other farmers is it's probably up to us to try and educate, even though that sounds really far-fetched. Unless we get involved and get active and get educating these policy makers and all their staff and all the minions in Wellington, we are up against an absolute biting of legislation that is coming at us like a tidal wave. And we really need to start pushing back as hard and as fast as we can. Otherwise, it is simply going to put a lot of us out of business. Yeah, you're right. It's really important that farmers are united and indeed industry are on board with this. And someone said to me recently, can't remember who it was, but farmers need a seat at the table so they're not on the menu. I think that's a pretty good analogy. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I've also heard the comments about having to be in the tent with these discussions as well. And to a certain degree, I, I, to a certain extent, I agree with that. But I also know that sometimes 
you need to actually tell people that I'm sorry that this is just completely wrong. Mm. We need to wrap this up. We need to start again. And this is why, because going along with something that is just fundamentally flawed is just going to create a whole lot of more problems and bigger problems further down the track than actually being honest and brutally um, maybe having to disagree up front. That's mm. just my opinion. Yep. So we can agree that farming is getting harder, it's not getting easier. And things like land values continue to rise. It's getting harder for farm gate returns to keep pace with that. Um, is the traditional family farm under threat, do you think? I would say it is now, yeah. Within the last six months, what's happening with, with the carbon price and driving land use change through that, I don't actually see how even the traditional family farm unit can be passed from one generation to the next without there being significant advantages. I mean, what I mean is not obviously based on what the financial value is. If you were to sell it to trees, there's got to be some sort of uh, gifting or, you know, um, mm. that sort of thing in the succession yep. plan. Yeah. And, that, yep. and the flow on effect from that is, is, is not good because it obviously takes away what was already incredibly hard goalposts for people that are trying to get into the industry, that are trying to, you know, step up from a manager to an owner or get into a lease block and all those sorts of things. Although those goals are just moving away from them as well so fast that it must be just incredibly disconcerting for them and, to be honest, making them want to, want to look at a different career. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of pressure on farmers right now. What do you do to relax and unwind? Uh, that's a good one. And over summer, obviously, farming can be busy, but it's also summer, so you do, we do try and get some time off the farm. But I think the big thing for me, uh, which has been obviously highlighted in the last couple of years with lockdown, etc., we're very fortunate that we have our families mainly at home. So mm. even if you have a, a really shitty day on the farm and you know, you're feeling the pressure, you can walk inside your house and your family's there and you can talk about stuff that's, you know, completely disconnected to farming. And that's a really good out for a lot of us farmers because mm. we have the, our families very close to us and we're very lucky in that regard. And we've been largely unaffected by these lockdowns that the likes of the poor buggers in Auckland have had to endure. So we're very fortunate in that regard, but I think, I mean, for for us, we, we're big on exercise. Um, yep. That's why we do the mutter every year, and we mm. know the link between exercise and improved mental health. Yep. Um, and particularly, as I guess we get a bit longer in the tooth, we need to be all mindful of our health. And you can get really caught up in the day-to-day stuff and the grind and just put your head down because you have to, but you really need to think about your own well-being as an investment as a farmer because the, the alternative is not a very good one. Mm, I agree with that. Hey, look, Andrew, I really appreciate your time. Have a great Christmas and we'll catch up soon. Cool, Angus. Good to chat. Most know that I am a believer in the right tree in the right place. Wholesale land use change into exotic forestry for farming carbon and the ETS, in my view, needs to be reined in. And you can catch previous episodes, which go into detail on this, and there will be more in the future. Given that there has already been significant land converted into forestry, resulting in a decline in livestock numbers across all classes, as a result, farmers' emissions have trended down. So you could argue that farmers should not be put under so much pressure 
and slow the pace in which emission policy is being thrust down farmers' necks by a government completely out of touch and a government that clearly has no understanding of the primary industry and indeed its importance to New Zealand. Well, that's all for me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.